Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. At IFG, we really value someone trying to run a halal business without dealing in riba. And we love it when Muslims bring something innovative to the table. And that's why we support Shropshire Hills-based Euro Quality Lamb, the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir in Europe. And I've actually been there and they're doing something genuinely impressive. And it has infused within it the Muslim ethos. What's special about Euro Quality is that out of the 15,000 lambs they process every week, they only select a handful of the best breeds of grass-fed lamb for their home delivery service. The meat is cut how you want it, English cuts, desi cuts, barbecue style. You just don't find this stuff at your local butchers. So order online at eurocualitylambs.co.uk forward slash shop and reference Islamic Finance Guru to get yourself a free masala marinade worth £4.50 and a YouTube recipe hijri calendar worth £5. Terms and conditions apply. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim podcast. Um, today we have a very exciting guest, Abdul Hasib from Ellipsis. And he's in the same kind of category of people like Haris Irfan and others who've kind of been the early pioneers in the Islamic finance scene. And in particular, you know, Abdul Hasib, you've done a lot of work with the government and policymaking and around that whole area. Um, as well. So, you know, really happy to have you on, on the podcast and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about, you know, just what's been happening and what, what you're up to in particular. But before we get into all of that stuff, it'd be really interesting to hear, you know, a bit about your background, like where did you grow up and all that stuff. Asalaamu Alaikum. Firstly, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak to you. I grew up, I was born in the UK, but very early on, uh, my family moved to the Middle East. My dad was an expat doctor um, who moved to Saudi in the 80s, probably when the Saudis were building their medical schools and hospitals uh, and were looking for Western educated doctors. So I spent the first 10 years of my life living between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, where my parents are originally from. Whereabouts in Saudi? It was in Riyadh and then a small town called Abha, which is uh, in, in the sort of southwest towards the Yemen border up in the mountains, which was very temperate climate, very, very nice. Lots of history there as well. I really enjoyed that time as a child living in a Muslim country or two Muslim countries and then came back to the UK when I was 10 years old and I've been here since. Most of my sort of career has been in financial services. Uh, I started off actually in media, uh, working as an accountant, uh, qualified as an accountant, but moved into banking. I spent 10 years working in conventional banks. And as much as my career progressed through the ranks, there was always a feeling that it didn't quite align with my ethics and yeah. morals. Yeah. And so I started looking around for other things and came across Islamic finance when it was sort of taking off in the first wave. When was this like roughly? This was uh, sort of late 90s, um, late 90s, early 2000s. 
And you were based in London, I'm presuming. I was based in London, uh, worked for Global Bank, so, you know, travel around the world, working in different locations, but uh, always based in London. What kind of, what bit of the, where were you working within the Global Banks, like what bit of it? I worked across quite a few areas. I worked across the finance function, so working with the CFO of banks. I worked across sort of technology function and latterly moved into wealth and asset management, um, working on strategy and technology. And so I always had an interest, even from my media days, in the impact of technology on industries. Um, my time in media was spent during the dot-com boom and bust, um, so taking a, an offline publisher online and all of the various uh, complexities of doing that, and then watching the industry crash a little bit, yeah. and then moved into financial services in the, in the sort of the boom days, and then watched it go through financial services crash as well. So... Um, coming out of that, it was actually quite nice to have the opportunity to set up the fintech association here in the UK called Innovate Finance. It was an idea that was born out of the David Cameron, George Osborne government at the time, who wanted to promote and protect London and the UK's position as the leader in fintech globally. And one of the things that the industry really needed was a, a strong advocacy voice. That was the sort of thinking behind Innovate Finance. Uh, we launched that in 2014 and grew that to a you know, membership of over 250 companies uh, from large banks to startups. And it was actually at that point, um, having explored Islamic finance first time round and found that it didn't quite match the theory of what I knew about Islamic finance uh, in terms of what was being done in practice. It was the second time round where I had more of a fintech specialism when fintech started becoming a topic in Islamic finance that I found a way back into Islamic finance. Uh, Interesting. Side. Before we go further, I actually wanted to pick up your the Saudi angle. Yeah. Because um, my dad is a doctor as well. And he used to work in Saudi for a long time in Khubar, the yeah. uh, that area. I think we actually have a lot of, I mean, you were there a lot earlier than I was, but I think we have similar experiences in that sense. I wasn't, I mean, my, my dad was, when he went, I was a lot older, but I did get to spend time in Saudi. And it's, I think it's a unique, like, experience growing up in, in that, like, kind of expat community. I think for you, probably, it was much less, I would imagine, in, in the 80s, much less kind of, you know, walled compounds and that sort of thing. It was first time around in Riyadh, although I was quite young, so I have very few memories of that. But second time around in Abha, we actually lived in an apartment block, which was all expat doctors. It was in the middle of town. So, you know, very much integrated to, in yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the indigenous population. Um, fond memories of, uh, you know, going to the markets and, uh, and exploring the town. Uh, we actually went to school on a on an American military base about right. because it was the only English wow. school in the area. So it was it was a very unique experience in that you got to kind of explore three or experience three different things. You got to experience the expat lifestyle, you got to mingle with the local population, but also this other expat population, which were all military coming from the US mm. mainly um, and other and other places. So it, it was a very unique experience. I actually met my wife while I was in Abha. Um, we were at school together. Right. Uh, we connected many years later back in the UK and, you know, now happily married with two kids. MashaAllah. So how old are they? fond experiences. Uh, my kids are nine and six. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're kind of past the whole sleepless nights stage. Uh, yeah, sleepless nights, but they're coming up to, you know, my daughter's coming up to teenage years. So, <laughs> so you're going to get sleepless nights yeah, again. Nice back again. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. So let's pick up your story. Well, so you're back in London, you've set up Innovate Finance. And then how did you kind of get into the whole Islamic finance? I think you were you're starting to get into that. Um, it was actually just an email out of the blue coming from a conference organizer in the Middle East saying, hey, we're the largest Islamic banking conference in the world. Um, we'd like you to kind of help us 
um, educate our audience about what's happening in fintech. And so in that very first year, we went off to Bahrain and took a number of fintechs with us, uh, a couple from the UK, Yielders was one of them. And we ran a bit of a showcase at the end of the conference on fintech. And that was the first time I think anyone had discussed fintech at an Islamic finance conference. Now, if you go to that conference or any other, I mean, every panel is discussing something around tech. So fintech, it, yeah. you know, the, the topic is well ingrained in, in the Islamic finance world now. Uh, but back then in sort of 2015, it was very, very new. And sorry to cut you off. Do you think it's um, like in the mainstream, you've got, you know, the mainstream financial center, you know, banks, whatever services, and then you've got the fintechs. And I think there's a lot more, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like there's a lot more of a closer kind of relationship these days than there was. Um, interested to hear your thoughts. How do you think that relationship contrasts with the relationship between Islamic banks, mainstream Islamic banks, and Islamic fintechs? The narrative in the early days of fintech was, was quite interesting. It was, you know, the fintechs are here to eat the bank's lunch and to kill the banks. And very quickly that sort of went away because people realized banks are here to stay. They're not going away. But there's actually some merit here in that their technology stacks are old the customer experience of what they can deliver from a technological standpoint is poor. Um, customers, you know, if you, whatever surveys you look at, especially here in the UK, you know, majority of customers are dissatisfied with their bank service. And so there is an opportunity for technology to improve that. Um, thereafter, there are areas of financial services provision where uh, people are underserved, um, people are excluded. Um, there's still an unbanked problem here in the UK, a uh, quite significant one. Really? Yeah, it's. I think the last stats I saw it was around two million people are oh, unbanked in the UK. Yeah, on a population of sixty million, that's you know that's, that's a, a fair chunk. decent chunk. Yeah. And so these are problems that banks have not been able to solve. So technology providers perhaps can. And then as you go further, if you're a technologist and you go further into the banking stack and actually look at some of the technologies being used, look at some of the processes involved. Um, there is a huge amount of opportunity for technology to really play a part in the provision of banking services. And how does that kind of compare to the Islamic banking scene and vis-a-vis -vis Islamic fintechs? So interestingly, sort of when that topic of fintech came into Islamic finance, we saw a lot of the same narrative being repeated. You know, I used to say Islamic banking is about three years behind where conventional banking is in terms of fintech. And that gap is narrowing a little bit. And actually, it's narrowing because of the same things that happened here in the UK. So in the UK, we had very progressive government policy around fintech. Um, I think the regulatory space here is very, very progressive. So, you know, I talk about this wherever I go in the world. The FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, the, the main regulator here in the UK, is the only regulator in the world that has a competition mandate. And this was a change that came out of the financial crisis where they're actively incented to allow competition in financial services. No other regulator in the world has this mandate. Hmm. But because of this mandate, the FCA is a leader in the space and have done a number of things um, through their innovation hub, through the launch of a regulatory sandbox that have been pioneering from a regulatory perspective and have allowed um, more space for fintechs to come into the UK market. I think at the last count, there were over 20 other regulatory sandboxes that have been launched now globally by regulators following that FCA model. Uh, to various degrees. And so I think where Muslim countries or countries where there's an Islamic finance presence have been able to catch up a little bit is having this fast follower mentality, which is look at the things that work, 
and adopt them very quickly. So you have some very progressive regulators in the Middle East, um, the likes of ADGM and the Central Bank of Bahrain. Um, we're now starting to see more regulatory guidance coming out of the likes of SAMA in Saudi Arabia. And if I'm honest, from the GCC, this is, you know, what I hear from most fintech founders is that Saudi is the market that they want to address because of the, the, you know, the size of the population and market there. And so things are moving in the right direction. Um, they're not always the quickest, but I think that gap certainly in, in most of the Gulf countries has narrowed. Um, I think Saudi now sort of taking more of a, a progressive approach to fintech is certainly going to accelerate that as well. Interesting. And so I think that's a nice point to dive into the Global Islamic Fintech Survey that you put together with, I think, is it Salam? It's with Salam Gateway and the UK Islamic Fintech Panel. Brilliant. I mean, before we dive into it, it would be nice to hear about what you guys get up to at Ellipsis as well, because I suppose that kind of, to some extent, shapes your you know reasons for doing this. One of the best things to come out of my time at Innovate Finance was a fantastic network in fintech and conventional finance and Islamic finance. Uh, but also, um, I met my co-founder at Ellipsis there, so Lawrence Wintermeyer, who was um, the CEO of Innovate Finance for just over three years. I was the CFO. Um, he and I ran the organization and really found out, found that we got on really, really well. Um, so well that our families get on really well as well. Right. We spent even more time together than just in the office and started to talk about the things that I think bugged us about, you know, financial services and fintech and uh, and what we wanted to do. We're both from a wealth and asset management background, so we have a, have a specialism in that area and decided that, you know, once our time was done in a not-for-profit, we would go off and look at other opportunities. And that was really the thinking around Ellipsis. Ellipsis was founded as an advisory and an, a research function and a, a venture builder. And so we do, we do those three main things. Uh, we've been very fortunate in the two plus years that we've been going that every client that we've had has had some ethical Islamic or impact angle. And so that's become our core. You know, that's an area that we're hugely interested in. Um, we've also built a couple of ventures uh, within that. One of the first things we did coming out of a not-for-profit was we got approached by a community friend of ours uh, to help build another not-for-profit, uh, which is called Global Digital Finance. And this is a, uh, a members association. It's a global members association focused on digital assets. So around the time uh, at the end of uh, or during 2017 and 18, when there was a big ICO boom and bust. Yeah, um, yeah. For, you know, for, for your listeners who are not familiar with ICOs, ICOs were initial coin offerings that were being done by uh, companies that had or purported to have some blockchain technology or some token technology. And there was everything from, you know, very legitimate, interesting projects that had a potential to outright scams uh, going on. And so the credible actors within the industry felt that before regulatory pressure really starts to hit, um, as regulators starting to look at this space, there's a need for an organization that helps develop conduct standards in this area. And so Global Digital Finance was launched and uh, to date we've developed eight conduct standards around digital assets and we're developing more now. We have a community of over 200 firms. We work with about 30 global regulators uh, who are you know, looking at the codes that we produce as a way to not only upskill their own team but also develop their own regulation as well. Um, we're working collaboratively with other organizations in the blockchain and token space as well and we've got many more plans to expand what we do there. 
that was the first thing we did, as well as the advisory work that we were doing. Uh, the second thing we did, we launched last year an investment management platform, uh, which is a platform as a service focused on the mid-market wealth and asset managers who don't have much of a technology offering. And because of that, either not able to access the parts of the market that they could with technology or uh, provide the types of products that their clients are now asking for more and more, especially when it pertains to the ethical, sustainable side. Yeah. So I think I kind of understand what you just said, but it'd be helpful for people with like, you know, not so much financial background. What, what does mid-market mean? And what are, the kind of, what are these guys doing essentially, which is presumably taking money from... There was a bit of regulation enacted here in the UK called RDR, the Retail Distribution Review. And what this meant was that financial advisors who were paid a commission by the product provider. So for example, if you went in looking to buy a pension product or a savings product, they would show you the available products and offer you some guidance on which one was suitable for you. Uh, you would pick one and uh, start paying into that uh, product and they would get a commission from the provider. The idea behind the regulation that was enacted was, well, they can't earn a commission any longer because they're not incentivized to provide you the best deal. They're incentivized to steer you towards the deal that gives them the most commission. And that's all well and good. But the unintended consequence of that was that the way their charging model worked was they would now have to charge the client directly up front for a, a monthly or an annual fee. And what that did was that started to exclude large amounts of their clients. Um, so there is this sort of grouping of mass affluent, which is kind of most people who have some savings fall into, you know, somewhere into that category. Um, beyond that, there's high net worths and ultra high net worths who are, you know, significantly larger amounts of money, but uh, there's fewer of them. And so some of the traditional top tier banks started to focus on the high net worth and ultra high net worth space because it was more profitable for them. What that meant was it created this advice gap where, you know, people further down, so the mass affluent and below, uh, started to not be able to access those services. So it was an, un an unintended consequence of that. That's where sort of mid-market asset and wealth managers um, play. Th these are the people that have the clientele from that space. Now, this tends to be a very face-to-face -face process in my experience. So you sit down with an IFA with sheets of printed paper and they show you your portfolio and show you product brochures yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you pick what you want and then if you want to make a change you know somebody will run back to a computer tweak a few things and come back and, and show you starting to change now maybe some of them have ipads and they can show you yeah, dynamic yeah. portfolios but what they're really missing uh, we felt was the ability for uh, clients to be self-directed so for you to be able to go onto a portal and actually look at your own portfolio and make changes based on your circumstances or needs and for you know wealth and asset managers to actually provide that advice in a digital format yeah uh, and so there are huge amounts of um, wealth and asset managers who haven't yet upgraded their technology so our, what our platform does is it allows them to to be able to do that in a modular way Interesting. So the wealth and asset managers, when you're referring to them, that's separate from the IFAs, independent financial advisors, or so they're like a body that... Yeah, so IFAs. I mean, wealth and asset managers normally tend to be sort of, um, you know, private banks or asset management firms, but um, IFAs can either act independently or as part of a network, so that network can be yeah. considered a, a wealth, wealth management manager. firm. Fine. Yeah, fine. Interesting. That's very much a tangent. Uh, we were going to launch into the, yeah. you know, the global Islamic fintech survey. So, so. Uh, you know, Islamic fintech is an area that I'm very passionate about. I think as Muslims, especially here in the UK, we are not um, holistically served by Islamic banks. Um, I feel there, there has been a gap for a very long time. 
Um, myself, as my financial services needs have become more sophisticated over the years, have found that the solutions I need are just not available. Or if they are available, there's not many of them. They're not very competitive. Yeah. And so always was a champion and saw the opportunity of Islamic fintech. So when the likes of Yielders and Wahed and others launched, um, you know, was very, very keen to be supportive of those organizations, as I feel they're really, really providing a, you know, a much needed service. And again, on the conference circuit in Islamic finance, one of the things that we were talking about was Islamic fintech. And somebody asked the question, well, actually, how big is this space? And so in 2017, I worked on a bit of research called the Islamic fintech landscape, which was actually just a simple landscape of how many firms are in the Islamic fintech space. And we found globally there was 110 at the time across various verticals and geographies. Um, what was interesting about that initial study was that the second highest location for Islamic fintechs were actually the UK after Malaysia. That was quite interesting. Having worked on the conventional fintech side, I kind of see why that was the case that, you know, the UK does have a very enabling environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we do have a Islamic finance specialism. Yeah, we yeah. have a decent Muslim population as well and lots of Muslims in the financial services space. So lots of those founders were coming out of, you know, banking careers and looking at what they could do to actually solve some of these problems. Fast forward from that, in 2018, Dinar Standard uh, did the first Islamic fintech report, which actually, you know, looked at the sector in, in a lot more depth and then started to actually do some case studies around some of the, some of the firms and the models that were coming out. And... You know, there was an aspiration to keep that research going. So in, at the end of 2019, um, with the help of Salam Gateway, which is now partnered by Dinar Standard and um, the UK Islamic Fintech panel, uh, we launched the Global Islamic Fintech Report, which was predominantly a survey of fintech founders and Islamic banks and other service providers within the Islamic finance space around how they felt the sector was doing, um, what some of the challenges were, what some of the growth opportunities were, uh, just to understand this space a bit more. I mean, the three real aims were to raise awareness of Islamic fintech, find out more about the sector, where it was going, what specifically what the experience of founders is, and then really understand uh, from the perspective of things like the UK Islamic fintech panel, areas where more support can be provided to Islamic fintechs for them to scale and succeed. Yeah. And what did you find in terms of um, where you think things are going? I think the biggest findings were that it is a growth sector. Um, it's still quite nascent. A lot of the firms are early stage. Um, there's a few outliers in that that are on the growth trajectories uh, and have, have started to raise significant amounts of money. So, you know, last year alone, Islamic markets, Yielders, Wahid, all raised money. Um, there are certain areas that are well developed from a sector perspective. Yeah. So what kind of figures are we talking about? When so we're talking, we're talking multi-millions uh, that these companies are now raising and getting up to sort of Series A size, which is a, which is a good indicator of growth in this sector. But, you know, there's not many that are beyond Series yeah. A at the moment. Um, the sort of the, the top five expected areas of growth and, you know, over the next year are peer-to-peer -peer and crowdfunding, which has historically been the largest area in Islamic fintech. Challenger banking is an interesting one and upcoming, and you know we, we can talk about that one a little bit. And then you know areas like blockchain and crypto and robo advisory and lending are seen as real growth areas for this space. And I think you know there's a real mix there of things that exist and have done well in Islamic fintech and areas that are very very new, but there's lots of actual growth potential there. Then we looked at some of the challenges that these firms have, although some of these earlier firms and bigger firms have been successful in raising money. 
early stage companies still find access to capital as the biggest barrier to getting going and scaling. And why do you think that is? I do have some experience of, of raising money for some of these firms. And I think historically what we've seen is that conventional investors don't always understand the Islamic finance opportunity. Yeah. And Islamic investors don't always understand technology and the potential for technology as a risk capital investment. Yeah. I think those things are changing. I think we will start to see more more and more money coming in to not just Islamic fintechs, but Islamic economy firms from conventional venture capital. And we'll also start seeing more money coming in from um, Islamic investors as well into the space. Here's a couple of counterpoints, um, which I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on, because obviously we, we get involved in the whole startup fundraising side of things as well. Yep. And something we hear is that people say that Islamic finance is much less scalable um, than mainstream products. And the argument goes that, you know, Islamic communities are very fragmented. So, you know, if, you, if you're going to target the kind of quality target audience that the UK is, a developed country, you know, fairly affluent, um, but the UK only has three, or three million or so Muslims. So if you're going to get that kind of market, you need to target a whole range of, you know, hodgepodge communities across the global you know, Muslim community. And that, from a scaling perspective, could be quite challenging. So that's one, you know, one kind. I think I tend to agree with that. I think the UK is a unique Muslim community. Um, you have people that came here at different times. Within different communities, you have, you know, first generation immigrants. You have second, third generation now. You have various levels of socioeconomic classes uh, within Muslim communities as well. So it's not it's not a homogenous group that you can just say, you know, this is what a Muslim consumer wants. But I've not yet met a Islamic fintech founder who just wants to address the UK market. Yeah. They all have a global ambition. 100%. My question is that, so like, for example, let's say you've got Monzo. Yeah. Monzo can target 70, 80 million people in the UK because all of them, give or take, are potential targets. Whereas for your typical Islamic fintech, which may or may not target everyone, um, they've got a much smaller target audience. And then, you know, Monzo, when it replicates in Belgium, for example, again, it's got a huge target audience. Well, it's got, you know, the entire population of Belgium, whereas for Muslims, it's a lot smaller. And then on top of that, you know, you've got, and this is, I suppose, my second point, which is even amongst the target market of a Muslim, You've got those who are practicing and those who aren't. So that kind of reduces it down. I mean, I have an answer to this, but I wanted to hear your... I'd actually be really interested to hear your answer as well. But I think my answer to this is if you look at the way financial services are going generally, especially this week, it's Davos week, and a lot of the announcements coming out of Switzerland are the likes of BlackRock saying they won't, you know, they're going to divest from, start to divest from fossil fuel companies. Um, lots more focus on climate-friendly companies, um, diverse companies, ethical companies. That's the way conventional finance is going. And as Islamic finance is growing, there's going to be a crossover at some point. And that really will be the accelerator opportunity for Islamic finance because a lot of the principles around uh, you know, ethical and responsible finance are very, very closely aligned to Islamic finance. And so when you say that, yes, you know, most... Islamic finance companies or Islamic fintech companies are looking at Muslim consumers, a lot of them are not necessarily branded as 
Islamic companies. They don't have Arabic names. Um, they aren't overtly marketing as being Sharia compliant. That's a, you know something they market through to one channel to Muslim yeah, consumers. Yeah, yeah. And the reason behind that is they want to be mass market applicable. And I think as the consumer sentiment changes to look for more ethical finance solutions, that will come. The time oh, yeah, will come. Yeah, yeah. Islamic finance firms are going to be well-placed to capitalize on that. That's a real opportunity for Islamic fintechs is to position themselves to be ready for that upturn in ethical finance. Interesting. Um, I'll share my view as well. I mean, I kind of agree with a lot of what you've said. On this whole ESG, so, you know, the analysis is that, you know, you've got someone like Yielders, for example, who have a neutral name, so you can potentially target non-Muslims. And I presume, you know, there's non-Muslims in, in the investor base as well, because it's something that's open for everyone. And the idea is that as we move towards more ethical, environmentally conscious investment and that sort of thing, people will look to who are the companies there, and a lot of Muslims are in that space. My question is that how do you distinguish in this very crowded space, because I find that whenever I see you know any fintech pitching these days, they have some kind of ethical angle in there, and you know I'm sure out of the twenty of them, there's about five who are actually really good and genuinely like full stack ethical, and they have investments in the right place. How do those companies stand out against so much noise? Two things, I think. Firstly, I think you have to be authentic. So you can't just be doing it for the sake of doing it because it's trending right now. Um, I think you, you genuinely have to be ethical in nature and that has to come from the top down in your organization. Secondly, you know, whether you're a fintech, whether you're ethical, whether you're Islamic, none of that really matters in the end if you can't deliver a good customer experience and mm. do a better job for the customer than your opponent, you know, the yeah. competitor, yeah. 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 Uh, whether that's an incumbent bank or another fintech. So those things matter. These companies that we're talking about, the reason they're succeeding is because they are building a customer base and serving a customer base that are repeat customers. You mentioned, you know, Monzo. The reason people like Monzo is that Monzo delivers a good customer experience. Um, like any other bank, they've had outages when they have an outage, their founder is on Twitter talking about the outage and what mistakes they've made and what they're learning from it. You don't see, you know, someone from a big bank doing that. So they're appealing to a certain audience. They're addressing that audience in a certain way and they are scaling because of that. I think that has to be the approach in any fintech. You have to know your audience. Um, you have to address the audience how they want to be addressed. And you have to provide a better service than your your competitor. That's, it's as, it's you know it's as simple as that. It, at the end of the day, you can be the most ethical, most Sharia compliant company if you can't do a better job than your competitor. Uh, you know, as you quite rightly said, there are Muslims that are seeking specifically Sharia compliant services, and those that probably aren't. Um, they will go to whatever you know whatever price point works for them or whatever service provision works for them. So the key is make it work for them and yeah. them can be a, as big a category as you want it to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So I think, I suppose that for me, there's like two answers. One is, you know, your answer, which is for a business that can essentially, you know, white label um, itself for the main, like for the Islamic finance community and, and kind of, you know, can elide between the two, like the yielders, for example, then I think that that answer kind of makes sense where you're essentially just targeting the UK and, you know, focusing on, 
the full market and going after that. Now, of course, there are tensions between messaging and, you know, how you actually cater for, you know, the subset of the community where you started from. And also just from manpower perspective, because, you know, to, to run two different messaging campaigns, it's hard um, because, you know, if you've only got a small team, you probably can only go after one group. Uh, but anyway, I think that's... Yeah, I think, you know, let's use Yielders as an example. I should probably mention, you know, as a disclaimer, I'm on the board of Yielders, so I know a little bit more about them than, than most companies. You know, from a Yielders perspective, our marketing is based on our track record and our ability to deliver a return. Yeah. Um, th that's it. The fact that we're Sharia compliant is, you know, sort of in the, in the subtext. I think people know that. One of the, you know, as well as sort of the sort of outbound marketing, one of the things that Yield has, has done quite well, and actually some of the some of the other firms um, also have had to do this, is actually run workshops, education workshops for customers. And so here, you know, we're sat here in Canary Wharf today. You know, Yield has runs workshops here quite regularly where investors come in. And I've been to these workshops and I've seen the results of these, you know, even Muslim and non-Muslim customers turn up or potential customers turn up and often quite skeptical at the beginning, but by the end of the hour, you know, convinced because we've run through the model and explained the ethical nature of the business from the ground up. And so yeah. going back to the point that we were just talking about, you know, when they can see that ethics drives everything we do and the things that other platforms do. So for, you know, in, in Yielder's example, which is property investment, you know, other platforms leverage quite heavily. Um, the risks of doing that when the market takes a turn are massive and investors don't always understand that. Yeah. And so that can significantly affect your return. Yielders as an unleveraged proposition, you know, is insulated from all of that. And so it's things like that, that when they're explained and broken down to investors, they see the value of why you're doing it, mm. the way you're doing it, and then understand why it's better for them. Yeah. And it's amazing, you know, at the end of the hour, people are convinced and signing up. Much like other platforms, we've had to do this because... There is a lack of understanding in, in the consumer base about Islamic finance generally and about ethical finance. And there is a component of this which requires consumer education as well. Hmm. And so, you know, going back to that point about marketing, it's probably more important to educate the consumer about ethical, responsible finance than it is about being sure. Understood. So I think that makes sense from, you know, the, that just streamlines the marketing. I think one other important thing to kind of flag here is that, you know, you've got companies um, that can't, you know, sit between the two. So yielders can, I think, address the mainstream market. But people like, I think, Wahid would struggle a lot more because their product is inherently Islamic. And, you know, from the fees perspective, it's not as competitive as the mainstream. Or you've got companies like uh, like us, for example. We very much, cater, Islamic Finance Guru is very much catered to the Muslim market. Or you might have possibly Islamic markets. I mean, I'm not fully cognizant of exactly the business model there, but from my impression is that they're very much focused on, you know, the Muslim market. Yeah, I think, you know, Islamic markets uh, is an interesting company. Their, their whole, you know, sort of mission is to be the Islamic Bloomberg, uh, right. you know, for market data yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for the Islamic finance space. And so some of these are specifically catering to a Muslim audience in, a, you know, in the Islamic finance market. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think... You know, I would agree. Well, yeah, <laughs> and I, th I think, you know, you, you made a very good point just before we started, which was as the Islamic finance market grows, 
uh, these companies will go alongside it. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely right. You know, the Islamic finance market is not slowing down. It's in the trillions now. Um, yeah. and growing every year. Every time we see a report about the size of the market, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's on an upward trajectory. And again, I think as much as we expect fintechs to be able to you know, take advantage of this swing towards ethical and responsible finance, Islamic finance as a whole will definitely be able to capitalize on that. As well. Yeah. I'm also, because I'm kind of in the trenches with Islamic finance guru, I'm also a bit of a you know, realist in this as well. It's good to be able to say that you know, we've got a massive you know islamic economy um but of that you know as we know a lot of it is debt and in terms of like real tangibles i feel like there's a relatively small pocket of addressable muslims um in various different jurisdictions but i think the story that you know the reason why you know i'm inshallah going to go full-time at islamic finance guru is that capital these days is, is footloose and from a regulatory perspective, I think we're moving from companies that are tied to a specific jurisdiction and are much more global. So, you know, you have people in Saudi Arabia who use Revolut regularly. And in the UK, uh, you've got people who invest in people like Wafid and Yielders from all over the world. And we know that because, you know, we cover these guys. Us ourselves, we get traffic from all, all over the world. You can't control, you know, the Internet. As much as I think Russians or Iran might try, but you can't really control the internet. And because of that, I think there's an interesting trend here where you've got these kind of global group of investors developing that are actually, you know, you can target them mainly through the online networks in exactly the same way, whether or not they're in Malaysia or, you know, London. Uh, you've got this global elite or this global professional urban kind of community developing and at the same time you've got entrepreneurs and companies who kind of address those specific people as well and that i think then takes the target market to a larger number it kind of reduces the cost of going into each different market so for example you know historically if you're going from the uk to dubai you have to set up in dubai and you have to do that whole thing whereas now i think that it would be if I was your classic Islamic fintech, I'd try to address Dubai by not actually going to Dubai and setting up and you know, going through that whole regulatory headache and just kind of addressing it from afar and, you know, moving that way. And I feel like in the next the last few years, we've seen that increasingly rise. And I, I feel like we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming years. But I mean, this is just, you know, this is my kind of thinking on it. I mean, there's quite a bit that you mentioned there to unpack. So, um, I think generally we're globally in a low yield environment. Yeah. Right? So capital where it exists around the world is going to look for where yield exists. So capital is global and free flowing and will move to wherever it needs to move to, to achieve yield. And so that can be an opportunity. You quite rightly said that, you know, investors out of uh, Middle East will invest in platforms like Yielders and Mahed. And that's because there isn't really, a, you know, not much of a, a wealth management provision there in that part of the world yet. Um, I think the problems vary by jurisdiction. Um, I think here in the UK, we've just seen this month the announcement of the first digital Islamic challenger bank being launched with NIA. There's just not enough competition in Islamic finance in this market. Um, we don't have lots of Islamic mortgages available. Uh, we don't have very many Islamic lending products available. For Muslim businesses, we don't have any form of lending 
that isn't debt-based available or, you know, not much of it anyway. And so these are, you know, very addressable problems here. In the Middle East, addressable problems are completely different. In the Far East, the addressable problems are even more different. So I think there are opportunities everywhere. What, you know, where companies can achieve scale is if they find an area that can work across all of those jurisdictions. Mm, yeah. And so investment, there's no surprise that yielders and market as, in, as investment firms have done well because that is underserved across the world um, yeah. you know, in a Muslim and non-Muslim audience. And then I think finally, the, you know, the regulated piece is important because many fintech firms will be regulated, but a lot of them can operate and not be regulated as well. And regulation, as much as it, you know, as going to different jurisdictions and getting regulated can be painful, expensive, time-consuming, um, it, it's getting easier. Regulators are softening and um, making it easier for firms to do, do that. But also, once you are regulated, it becomes a barrier to entry to competition as well. It can be important on that scaling journey to protect yourself as well. So coming back to, you know, you said that the whole point of the Global Islamic FinTech survey was part of it was to work out, you know, what's coming up and also what support these FinTechs need to get, go to the next level. Um, what's your kind of one or two picks as an industry to kind of watch for the next year in Islamic FinTech? The first one would be uh, new areas that we haven't seen Islamic FinTechs in. So challenger banking is the big one. Um, expect quite a few announcements in that sort of space. And then the use of blockchain and crypto uh, within the space, especially around, you know, in Islamic finance, the biggest area is Sukuk. Yeah. Especially around Sukuk, there's last count, I think, at least five companies that I know of that are looking at issuing Sukuk on the blockchain, tokenizing Sukuk. And we've already seen a few announcements come out around that. Then I think the area to watch is what the banks do. So in the Middle East, there's still lots of banking consolidation going on and that's been the theme for the last decade or so uh, yeah. post-financial crisis i think a lot of those banks haven't really turned the corner and we've seen lots of lots of consolidation uh, you know as recently as this month with um, dib and norbank and so once that settles the approach that islamic banks take towards technology will be important in the Middle East, a lot of them have been, you know, launching their own challenger banks and labs and things like this and funds. One of the things that came out of the survey was that Islamic economy institutions or Islamic banks, their preferred route of engagement with fintech is partnering with existing fintechs. And so that's an area, again, for Islamic fintechs to find scale is yeah. through, you know, regulation that's been acted around open banking, which opens up banking customers to fintechs through partnerships. Um, is a potential for scale for some of these businesses. So the biggest challenge to a lot of fintechs is the cost of customer acquisition. And open banking is a, is a method to really take that down to pennies rather than pounds. So that is an area that as that progresses, you'll see Islamic fintechs achieving scale. And then I think the biggest sentiment that I hear from the industry is that countries in the Far East is where we'll see the most level of growth in 2020. And so... Indonesia tends to be the one that most mention as the biggest potential yeah. um, from an Islamic fintech perspective for growth. Yeah. Brilliant. So I'm just aware of the time, so we probably should wrap up. I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of your average Muslim who might be listening to this, what's your kind of message to them in terms of, A, why should they care about Islamic fintechs? And B, once they do care about Islamic fintechs, how can they support them? 
So firstly, yeah, I'm not quite sure what an average Muslim looks like, but, <laughs> but uh, I think my message would be, what should they know about Islamic fintechs? I think every Islamic fintech that I've come across is doing what they're doing because they want to serve our community. Yeah. Um, that is the underlying reason they all start. Of course, entrepreneurs want to do well, want to have a self-directed career and want to make money, but that is the, the common factor across all of them. Um, what can you do to support them? I think start using them, try them out. You know, I think Islamic Finance Guru is a great place to go and find out about what these companies are, what do they do. You guys really get under the skin of what is this product and what are the things to look out for. Most of these companies are digitally enabled, so it takes minutes to go online and open an account with them. And you know, you can for most of these companies, you can start with small amounts of cash. You don't need thousands. Just start. Just try. Um, yeah. Set up a digital wallet with one of these guys. Um, when these Islamic challenger banks open, open an account with them. It doesn't have to be your primary account in the early days. You know, people that were using Monzo and Revolut and Starling Bank weren't using it as their primary account initially. They were trying it out, seeing what it's like. Um, try out the products, help them grow. Um, you know, a lot of these companies learn how to service their customers from feedback from actual customers. So that's how you can help. I think as Muslims generally, we tend to sometimes be very skeptical of other Muslim businesses. Try not to be skeptical and give these guys a break because they are looking to do something valuable for our community. And you might find you get a better customer experience out of it as well. Absolutely. It is very, very challenging to kind of go against those kind of lifetime of experiences of Muslim businesses. I completely get that. But my, I mean, my perspective is that through Islamic Finance Guru, we work a lot, you know, a lot more closely with, with these businesses than most people do. And Islamic fintechs, they are a different breed, I think, of business to your average Muslim business. And I find that they're a lot more responsive. Uh, the teams are a lot more well-educated and kind of trained in, you know, the arts of looking after a client and just responding to emails and calls and that sort of thing. And I think that makes a massive, massive difference. So, yeah, I would completely echo everything that you've said. Jazakallah khair, Abdul Hasib, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to the Global Islamic Fintech Survey of 2020, uh, when we can, you know, catch up and find out what's been happening and listen back to what we've talked about today and see if any of it's actually come true or not. Thank you. Uh, look forward to it, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.